Welcome to In This Case, a podcast from Hilti that goes behind the scenes at one of the most iconic brands in the world of construction. We'll talk to the people who make it all happen and ask them who, how, what if, and of course, why. Here's your host, Claire Combs. Welcome back. Today, we continue our series on the work supported by the Hilti Foundation, and this one makes a pretty big splash. Underwater archaeology was the first program ever supported by the Foundation, and the commitment today is as strong as ever. In this episode, we'll learn more about how it all works and how the program has impacted both the field of archaeology and our grasp on human history. So my name is Christine Romberg. I have been with the Hilti Foundation since 2012. You may remember Christine from our episode on music for social change. As part of her role at the Hilti Foundation, she also manages the Maritime Archaeology Program. So the Maritime Archaeology Project is actually the oldest program we have. It was has been the first program of the Hilti Foundation and actually the reason why the Hilti Foundation has been founded. It was in the 1990s when Frank Godiot met uh, Michael Hilti for the first time. And that first part of the story, the way the two men met, well, it begins with some surprising twists of fate. My name is uh, George Rosenbauer. I'm originally German, Bavarian. He's retired from Hilti now, but over the years, George worked for the company in several different capacities. And at one point, he served as the head of Hilti North America, which was headquartered in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A fantastic city for sure, but also probably not the first place that comes to mind when you think of underwater archaeology. During my time in Tulsa, I got involved in the community. Part of that involvement included developing friendships with other local business leaders. And it just so happened that the group George connected with had a shared fascination with diving and searching for shipwrecks. This informal collective of friends was looking for the next project they would invest in together and had come across one diver in particular from France. So there's a George. We have this Frenchman and uh, we are all Americans from Oklahoma. Why don't you come for dinner? We had very nice dinner together and I met for the first time Frank Odio. It was a long time ago in 1994. My name is Frank Godio. I am underwater archaeologist. I am working in that field since now 36 years. We realized over the weekend he had nothing to do. So we said, okay, you come to us and you stay with us and we spend the weekend together. And I had a chance to talk to him a lot. Huh? I said, well, that must be a very risky business. And I said, no, it's not a risky business. I said, why? Frank explained to George that his approach was unique relying on customized technology, some of which he'd only conceptualized, to overcome obstacles that had plagued underwater archaeologists for hundreds of years. The discussion made an impact on George. When I was back in uh, Europe the week after, I told Michael Hilti about it, and he found it as fascinating. Soon after, Michael Hilti found himself in Tulsa, where he met Frank Godio for the first time. He asked a lot of questions about underwater archaeology, what was a possible program, historical program, which could be the most interesting 
underwater project around the world, etc. And we discussed a lot and we spoke a lot about Egypt and about the missing cities in Egypt, about the famous and famed Portus Magnus of Alexandria, which had disappeared under the sea, and missing cities. City of Canopus was missing, the city of Tonis was missing, the famed city of Heracleion was missing, and most probably those cities had disappeared under the sea. Michael E.T. seemed very interested by the project, but say, okay, let we talk uh, about those uh, projects to my father, Martin E.T. And uh, several months after, I received a phone call and I was invited to come. And they very kindly received me in the E.T. office. And I explained what could be a new vision for underwater archaeology and what could be the most promising project in underwater archaeology. Egypt was, for me, the obvious place where we could bring the best in order to feed history with new discovery. Frank's dream has always been, since a long time, been to rediscover sunken cities which had disappeared for more than a thousand years. They have been known in literature, they have been famous, they have been important sites in ancient Egypt, but they had disappeared and nobody knew where they were. And Frank was convinced that they were underwater. My idea was to study history and see what in that history underwater archaeology could bring For example, in Egypt, I thought, okay, there, there is a missing city. Could underwater archaeology bring something new to, to that big lack in the Egyptian history? We said, Frank, it's crazy. Since Napoleon, 200 years ago, established an institute of archaeology and science in Alexandria, they were looking for that. And these are professionals. For 200 years, they have tried to find it. They did not. And you think you will do it? And he says, yes, it's technology. I can make a totally different approach. My approach is technology. And then he showed us what he had. And there were underwater regularity, five, six meters under the sand and sediments. So with the support and financial backing of Michael and Martin Hilty, Frank made his way to Egypt. The first project we have launched was a project in Alexandria. It was to locate the famed Portus Magnus, the biggest port of the antiquity, which was the glory of the city of Alexandria. We knew from the text that that port had temples, palaces, nothing left of that at the surface. Everything has disappeared. And the challenge was, let us try to make a map of the Portus Magnus, and let us try to have the proof that the Portus Magnus was in the area we saw. After one year of survey, we could define the layout of what we thought could be the layout of the Portus Magnus. We dove, we could not 
barely see our hand diving, visibility few centimeters, like if we were diving into the mud. <laughs> we touched the button, we could not see anything but sand, silt and debris. One meter of sediment, nothing. 1.5, nothing. Several days of excavating into the mud <laughs> without seeing anything. The third day, we were about 1.8 meter under the sediment. We touched something hard. It was <laughs> exciting. I started to clean and a block of granite appeared, little by little. And little by little appeared hieroglyphs. On that red granite block, there was three hieroglyphs, and the meaning was life forever. <laughs> it was a kind of a message from the past, you know, as a good omen, I would say, life forever. <laughs> And when he was successful with that project, the Hilti family who had supported that mission immediately understood that this is going to be a big thing. This is going to be a long-term commitment. And they went for it. They decided to do it. And they needed a kind of a legal structure to do it. And this was the moment when they decided to found the Hilti Foundation as a kind of a legal structure to execute the support of Franco Dio's work. For more on the structure of the Hilti Foundation and the family's perspective at that time, be sure to listen to the first episode in this series, which includes our special interview with Michael Hilti. So after only a few years in Egypt, Frank saw that it would not be possible for him alone to work on the results of these excavations. For sure, he always had his team. You have restorers, you have ceramic specialists, you have this entire team of people who collaborate and make such a, an endeavor happen. But the work just starts when you have found the objects, for example. And so we immediately understood that we would need a scientific partner to join us in that project. And we went to different universities and it was actually the university we wanted most that agreed to do it. And this was the University of Oxford with its School of Archaeology. My name's Damien Robinson. I'm the director of the Oxford Centre for Maritime Archaeology, which is based in the School of Archaeology at the University of Oxford where I'm also an associate professor. And I've been working with Frank Godio and the Hilti Foundation for about 12, 13 years now, so quite a long time. Frank's work is extraordinary. The material that comes from these projects and these excavations are just outstanding. And so the key here is to take them from the discovery context and undertake extensive scholarly research on them to kind of reveal that potential. And so we do this in a, in a number of ways. Firstly, the research itself, the really hardcore research, which the Hilti Foundation have helped us with through sponsoring doctoral students. Like this, we can also kind of secure the future of maritime archaeology by educating young people in that field. So many of the 
the students in the institute have written about uh, their thesis about uh, discoveries of Frank, which Frank had made, and they can participate in the excavations in Egypt. You know, it gives them extraordinary groups of material to work with and also the support of the center and the foundation and frank and his team in helping them to develop in the best way that they possibly can so step one is deciding where to excavate then safely recovering the objects from layers of sand and sediment next comes extensive research and analysis and after all that it's time to share the news for frank and his team one of the things we do is put together big academic monographs, which are kind of the the main staple of what academics like. So they're big, thick books full of all of the data. Beyond that is is the work that the foundation has really pushed us to think about and challenged us to think about, which is how do we use this material to tell interesting stories to different audiences. And so that's when the exhibitions come in. Together with the permission of the Ministry of Antiquity, we can organize traveling to exhibition with artifacts which have never been seen before, you know, brand new thing coming from the sea and, and show it to the public for the first time. You know, the most impressive thing was really to see things which nobody had ever seen before. Because normally when we go and see Egyptian exhibitions, it's the 25th edition of Tutankhamun. But to see an exhibition with artifacts which had just been discovered, which had never seen daylight since more than a thousand, thousand two hundred years or even more, then you just have a completely different feeling. It is really like seeing something outstanding and something which a human eye has not seen before. I mean, it's, it's this kind of a very emotional feeling. Given the fact that these incredible new artifacts have become central to our understanding of life in ancient Egypt, I asked Frank about the connection between his expedition and the Egyptian archaeological community. Of course, all those missions are made in close cooperation with the Ministry of Antiquity of Egypt. We are working as a joint team. And, uh, of course, the Ministry is very interested in those underwater archaeological uh, achievements because from what you are discovering, it does fill some gap of the history of Egypt. When you approach a, a site, the questions that you can ask initially are quite straightforward. What is this site? Where is it? What are the main features of it? Those kinds of things. But as you work on it, over the long term, which is what the support of the foundation has allowed us to do, then the questions that you can ask become more complex and more interesting. And so actually we're coming to, we're, we're at the point now where we're able to engage in much richer detail with things. So one of the great finds is, is a, a small boat called Ship Eleven, um, which we discovered through our research. It's now, a, we now think of it as a ritual boat. It's surrounded by ritual objects and we can look at its place within the landscape and we can ask questions about, well, why was this boat sacrificed in this particular place? What were the actions of the people? Why were they putting these objects around it into the ground? What were they doing? What kind of rituals were these part of? And these are much more interesting and complex questions than where's the temple? As important as that is, 
it's a kind of a fantastic puzzle. And you can compare what you are finding compared to the ancient text. And it does explain ancient text, but also the ancient text will lead you to go in some direction and you will find something. And it's a kind of a fantastic job of cooperation between the past and the present, thanks to modern technology. Effectively, we should study the past because it helps to tell us about the present, about the human condition, about who we are. And so by understanding past people, past actions, we can then reflect upon them in the, the modern world. So the city of Thomas Heracleion, for example, is coping with effectively the rise of sea level and the changes that are coming upon parts of the city becoming submerged. And so we can we can see the responses of these people to see how they, they kind of move around the landscape and the things that they do to try and continue to live in that difficult location. And then eventually why they leave, perhaps. And so this helps us to think about, this can help us to think about kind of modern day issues such as climate change and sea level rise in various places and coping with difficult environments. So far, Frank and his team have successfully identified and mapped three distinct cities. The first we've heard about, the Portus Magnus on the eastern side of Alexandria. The second was Canopus, which was famous for its religious significance in the time of the pharaohs and was a favorite stop for pilgrims looking for miraculous healing. The third city is the one that Dr. Robinson just mentioned, Tonus Heracleion, and that one was special for an entirely different reason. We were looking for two other cities, the city of Heracleion and the city of Tunis. We found one of the cities. Very fast, we knew the name of that city was Heracleion. And one week after, by discovering an intact steel in that area, we could prove that Tunis and Heracleion was one and the same city. Okay, so there's, a, there's an Egyptian name, which is Tonis, and then there's the Greek version of the name, which is Heracleion. Ancient authors sometimes, like Strabon, who came there in the first century BC, didn't know that. <laughs> the memory had already disappeared that the city of Tunis was the city of Heracleion in the past. You know? The pharaoh had decided that all ships coming out of Egypt and coming in Egypt, coming from the Greek world, had to go through that city to pay tax and duty on raw material and manufacture goods. It was a very important trading port and a very rich city, cosmopolitan city. But that city had also something fabulous. That city had the great temple to the supreme god Amon. And in that temple, all the pharaohs of the late dynasty of Egypt had to come in order to become pharaoh. This is one of the great beauties of archaeology, is that the potential for discovery of new things is always there. And Tonis Heracleion is one of those sites that keeps giving. This is an important point, because even though these diving expeditions have already illuminated so much rich historical detail, the team is acutely aware that there's much more to be done. So like clockwork, each spring and autumn, Frank and his team of experts can be found off the Egyptian coastline on their research ship, the Princess Duda. 
the team goes out and stays on the excavation site for six weeks. They stay the entire time. They don't go on land during this time. So they're completely focusing on that work. And you see how everybody works together. So it really, it is really a community on that boat. And everybody knows where his or her place is. And it's, a, it's a, an ongoing rhythm which is established and which just works because everybody knows we have to make the best out of these few weeks which we have to work there. The first time I went out to join the mission was just one of immense excitement and, and pride, really. I mean, I was given my red wetsuit and, and it's, a, it's a kind of an iconic thing. And, and through taking ownership of the red wetsuit, I, I absolutely felt part of the, you know, part of the team. And so the, the, the excitement kind of builds up as you get on the small support boat, the key in Abu Kia, and then you sail out across Abu Kia Bay. And the Princess Duda, our research vessel, comes closer and closer into view and you get you get closer to it. And then you start to see the work that's going on. So the, the other support boats and you start to hear the noise of the compressors. And then finally you get on board the ship and you you meet Frank. And there's always kind of new things that are there, new discoveries that have been made. And he's always really eager to tell you about what's what's going on. And so, the, you know, the first time that was that I was just utterly overwhelmed by the scale of the project, the complexity of it, the organization of it as well, and just the kind of the intellectual ambition that was uh, that was shown by it. And so it was a it was a, just a fantastic experience. And then to, to actually dive on the site as well and to to understand it and to take part in the research is a is a whole new layer of excitement and privilege and wonder. You know, you're 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 diving on one of the world's greatest archaeological sites in in one of the world's greatest archaeological projects, and to be able to take part in that is just it's a kind of it's a dream come true. The most interesting thing which I saw is Frank's personal work, because he is the one who, let's say, brings this enormous puzzle together. So whatever comes up with the divers, any kind of information, any kind of material that is found immediately goes into the general map which Frank has on the computer. So he's immediately documenting everything. And like this, the picture grows and grows and grows. And this is the reason why today he can describe what the city of Heracleion, Tony's Heracleion, looks like. He can describe what the great temple in the city looked like. And at the same time, he's in direct touch really with every single member of his crew. It's such a fantastic teamwork, which you see when you spend a day on that boat, beginning from the captain of the boat up to the cook, starting with the divers, to the restorers who are on board to put the fines in clear water, to wash the salt out, etc., etc. So everybody knows exactly what to do. And this is something that has inspired me most, this kind of collaborative spirit among this team Frank has with him. And most of the people he works with have been working with him for many, many years, some of them really since the beginning. You have to be patient. Yeah. Of course, your team will tell you, are you sure that what you are looking for is that in, 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 is in that area? You know, we are working now for one month, maybe it's not there. Okay, now we are working for three months. Do, are you really sure? It's 
now two years that we are working. Is it not time to go elsewhere? Frank, three years, it cannot be. And we are fighting. <laughs> Thus, you, are, you have to be patient. And sometimes you eat, of course, what you were looking for, wolves, shipwrecks, <laughs> cities. So patience is an important virtue for this type of work. But in practice, patience isn't always an option for most research archaeologists. A normal underwater project in the academic world, you're, you're sort of scraping around for money to enable the work to progress from a season-by-season basis. The support of the Hilti Foundation gives you that long-term security. I think the long-term commitment of the Hilti Foundation has allowed Frank to develop over the years much further than he might have been thinking at the beginning himself. So he has always been very interested into all kind of technological support for his work. That means all the technical equipment he needed to map this enormously big area in which he assumed that he would find the cities. And there, there is a major challenge when working in that field in Egypt, in this, exactly this area of the Bay of Habukir and in, in the port of Alexandria, which is that you find yourself in the delta of the Nile. And the Nile brings all this mud and all this material from the river into this Nile delta, which means you have two to three meters of sediment above the level of the findings. So when you cannot see and when you cannot find any technical equipment that allows you to locate potential findings without even showing you what it is, be it a wall or be it a shipwreck or whatsoever, then you're kind of lost in that enormously big area. To avoid getting lost, underwater archaeologists rely on a range of equipment to help them understand where to dive. But as Christine mentioned, emerging technology has been slow to support this highly specialized field. And in the early days, Frank and his team had to make do with equipment that wasn't exactly built for purpose. For example, one tool they use is a magnetometer, which measures direction and strength of a magnetic field at a particular location. Magnetometers have a wide range of applications, from mineral exploration to aircraft systems. I heard that uh, the French Commissary of Atomic Energy had developed a very peculiar nuclear resonance magnetometer. I took uh, contact with the French Commissary for Atomic Energy and we discussed and we decided to go into an agreement, both of us. And I say, okay, you have a magnetometer, may I test it? I test it, I say, it's a beautiful magnetometer, but it doesn't fit at all for what I want. <laughs> and we draw specification for a new magnetometer and we signed a protocol. I was bringing everything which was hard. They were bringing all the brain of their engineers. And after 80 months, they call me and they say, we have what you need. I say, let us test it in France. During that time, I had a new boat built, which was matching perfectly what should be a boat for a geophysics survey. It had to be stable. It has to have a lot of room. 
and we bid the Kaimiloa 60 feet catamaran, which was totally unmagnetic. Remember, they're using advanced magnetometers to search the seabed, so the boat itself had to be non-magnetic or amagnetic to avoid interference issues with the equipment. And with that boat and the new nuclear resonance magnetometer, we made a test in France, and that test was fantastic. And I say, with this, I can really start working. And what Frank did and what Frank succeeded in is he was able to develop the technology that allowed him, simply said, to look under the sediment. And this is not only a huge progress for himself because it saves him such a lot of time and he can work much more focused, but it is also up to now a completely new way of working in this field of maritime archaeology. And so it will impact not only Frank's personal work, but it impacts the entire sector. Over the time that I've worked with Frank, one of the things that I've continually been impressed about is is the innovation that, that happens in terms of the technology. Whenever there's a, a new form of technology, a new methodology that comes along, then Frank's always pushing it. We're always being challenged to, to kind of adopt these. So we can see this in terms of the mapping technologies that we perhaps use. And so when I first arrived, there were just very basic sort of topographical maps of the seabed. But the resolution of these has increased by doing different surveys as new technologies come available over the time. And so now we have maps of the seabed that are down to sort of centimetre resolution, whereas 10 years ago, it was much different from that. In modern surgery, you do scanner, you do Doppler before going to surgery and the surgeon will go exactly where he had to go. He has to go. We are exactly using that, I would say, process in underwater archaeology. It really is not only an outstanding archaeological project, but it is also something where you just don't see an end. It is endless and every year the results and the findings are more and more interesting. We will need more or less 300 years to finish the job there. <laughs> and all the team is very, very devoted to such work. Every year when we gather on the support vessel, all the team say, oh, the last mission, this was the best, the best. We, ne we will never find better artifact or more historical, more important artifacts that we found the last mission. And it so happens that, yes, we are finding even better thing, and, and of course, after years and years of work, it's like a puzzle. The more you work, the more you understand, the more you are efficient. So it is the scientific value that keeps us going on with this project, and it is the never-ending inspiration of Franco Dio and his will to innovate and to develop also the technical tools he uses for the excavations that add something really fundamental to the sector of maritime archaeology in general. The future is more interesting questions, more depth of understanding and a greater kind of appreciation for the complexity of this site. But also the questions that we ask are obviously related to the present world that we're in. And so, you know, issues of coping with a difficult climate, for example. 
you know, those are things that we, as the future goes on, we'll be able to ask other different questions about this, these sites and about the people that lived in them. To see pictures of the archaeological finds we talked about in today's episode, or to learn more about the ongoing work in Egypt, visit HiltiFoundation.org or FrankGodio.org. That's F-R-A-N-C-K-G-O-D-D-I-O dot org. In This Case is a production of Hilti North America. To give us feedback, ask a question, or share an idea for a future podcast, email HiltiDirect at Hilti.com. Hilti.com.